Then he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns, build larger ones. There I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, For this reason I say to you, do not worry about your life as to what you will eat, nor for your body as to what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap. They have no storeroom nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than the birds. And which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life's span? If then you cannot do even a little thing, why do you worry about other matters? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. But I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you? You men of little faith, and do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink, and do not keep worrying, for all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek. But your Father knows that you need these things. But seek His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Well, this is God's word. God's word for us at all times and in times of trouble. Well, please be seated and let's now spend some time in prayer. I want to pray for our church. I want to pray for our flock. So if you would bow your heads and just pray to the Lord now. Ask Him for the things that, that you need. Father, we come before you this morning. A church scattered like many churches, like most churches in the United States right now. Not meeting, not being together physically. But Lord, we are together in the Lord. We all are united in Christ. We share that union together. We all have the Spirit in us. All true believers have the Spirit, and we we worship in spirit and in truth this morning. Lord, I want to ask your blessing upon Grace Bible Church. It is a a challenging time, a a challenging time in our country, in the world, in the state, in this area for our church. Give us wisdom, Lord. Give us wisdom. Give us guidance. Help us to seek your word. We need it more than ever right now. We need your wisdom. We need to focus on things that matter. 
Help us to not get distracted. Help us to not get off mission. Help us to remember the Great Commission, which is still applying to us, even in our homes, even in our communities. Lord, help us this morning to truly worship you amidst all these circumstances. Let us set the things aside that worry us. Let us not worry at all, but trust in you. You are the one who provides, God. You are the one who will see us through. Everything that is happening right now is part of your plan. And so we confess, we trust, we know that you will see us through, Lord. You have promised that all believers, you will be with us, you will preserve us till the very end. We pray now for our cities. We pray for this area that we live in, the counties which are represented as part of this church. We pray that you might heal this area, Lord. If it's your will, that you would bring an end to this virus spread, that you would bring us back together in this location all together as one soon so that we might worship you and sing loudly your magnificent praises. We pray for our state, that you would give our leaders all over, Lord, local, uh, federal, that you would give them wisdom, that you would give them discernment, help them to make the right decisions at the right time, given the information they have. Give them more information, Lord, as we learn more about this pandemic. We pray, Lord, for our country, that our president would make wise decisions, that the believers that are surrounding him and in his cabinet would give him the wisdom which is found in Scripture. We pray that they would help him, that they would guide him, that your spirit in those believers would help our nation go in the right direction and make the right decisions. Most of all, Lord, help us to remember Christ. He is the one who died for our sins. He is the one that every believer can look to today and realize no matter what happens on this earth, we're going to be with Christ someday, that we will see him face to face. Help us to remember that, Lord, to focus on Christ, to run the race, throwing off everything that hinders us so that we might see his face. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we live in very uncertain times. I don't have to tell you that. Believers throughout church history, even Old Testament saints, have lived in similar times. There have been uncertain times that they went through. I think today, often we're asking questions. Even as believers, we're wondering, will my loved ones be okay? Will I get sick? Will my parents get sick? Will my grandparents... My loved ones who are going through cancer treatments and chemotherapy. My loved ones who have a weak immune system. They already have heart disease and lung disease. We worry that we'll just be able to get groceries sometime this week. We worry that we have enough groceries even when we go to the store. Do we have enough? With everyone else buying as much as they can, do we have enough groceries? Is there going to be a recession? Is there going to be a depression? What about my job? What about... My family, uncertainty abounds. But this is not a surprise to God. It's not a surprise to Jesus Christ. He prepared his disciples for this when he was on the earth. He prepared them for such uncertain times. What I want us to do today and maybe even into next Sunday is look at this section of Luke 12 and see what Jesus did to prepare his disciples for times of uncertainty. They will come. 
They will come, whether it's global like it is right now or whether it's just individual in your life. There will be times when you doubt. There will be times of uncertainty, times when you're tempted to fear. Probably many times right now that you're worrying. Well, Jesus addresses this. He's been speaking to his disciples here in the Gospel of Luke as he works his way to Jerusalem. He's making that journey to the cross. He knows what's going to happen to him. He knows what God has foreordained. And now he's going down to Jerusalem. And on that long journey, he's teaching his disciples. He's teaching them exactly what to prepare for. And he's been telling them strongly to be aware of the Pharisees, to stay away from them. You see that just in the first few verses of chapter 12. But for our first main point, I want to focus in on just 4 through 7. Just verses 4 through 7 of Luke 12, which are going to show us that we ought to fear God alone. In times of uncertainty, we want to fear all kinds of things. Some, some we think are, are real, and sometimes they're not even realistic things that might happen. We fear them, but we fear for our lives. It's human nature. It's our natural tendency. And this text tells us to fear God alone. Jesus is saying here that he wants us to know that we should not fear for our lives, but we should fear only God. That's how we show ourselves to be genuine disciples. How do you show yourself to be a disciple of Christ right now in this time? is to show people that you fear God alone. And therefore, your biggest concern is eternal life, not just what happens in this life. Look at verse 4. I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. The Greek word for fear here that Jesus uses, to be afraid, speaks not just of, of one time but an ongoing. It's an ongoing type of fear. It's in the tense that is always happening. There's always this kind of fear for a person's life. As a Christian, he says, don't. Don't do that. Do not be afraid. Do not be apprehensive. Do not be in continuous fear for oneself. This kind of fear is always present in the world. Believers have struggled around the world in previous years and months before the pandemic now that they have feared for their life. Maybe here locally we haven't had as much fear for our lives as others have, but there is always this temptation to fear. Well, Jesus here is addressing uh, persecution. The Pharisees are going to persecute, the, the, the Jewish synagogues are going to persecute Christians, the priests are going to persecute Christians, the Roman Empire will soon persecute Christians after this time. He's preparing for that. He's saying, uh, don't turn away, don't fear man. Don't let man make you turn away from Christ because you have fear. But this applies to any type of fear for our lives, whether it's man or whether it's a natural disaster, whether it's hurricanes, tornadoes, viruses, lack of food. It's just a fear here for one's own life, that it cripples you, that it makes you turn away from God. And he's saying we should not give in to fearing for our lives. This life is not the absolute most important thing ever. This life is important. God created life. But it's not the most important thing. Matthew 16, Jesus says, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? You you don't exchange your soul for your best life now. This text in Luke and, and again in Matthew is teaching us that we are to think about eternal things. And that points us to God. 
that makes us want to consider what God teaches us on fear. And he's saying here, do not fear. If the worst that can happen to us in this life is to have our body killed, whatever way it can be killed, why would we be afraid of anything? Death is the limit to this life. Death is a limit to what man can do, to what viruses can do, to what anything in the natural world can do. Death is it. But there's life after death. There's more than just our natural life right now. Believer, don't fear what might happen to you right now. Don't, don't fear for your life. Be, be like Paul, who said, as long as I'm living right now, I will serve Christ. But to die is actually better. If that happens, if God wills it, if God brings it about, then that's better because we get to go and be with Christ. In verse 5, he says, But I will warn you whom to fear. So don't fear man. Don't fear anything in this world, anything that the world might bring, natural or man-made. Don't fear it. I'll tell you who to fear. Instead of fearing that, fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. God the Father is the one who's able to punish eternally. Right now, unbelievers ought to have a great fear of what would happen if they died. All of these things in the world that scare them, what if they did die right now? has maybe nothing to do with the current situation. What if they just ended up dying for other causes, other reasons? There's a great fear, Jesus says, that a person would be cast into hell. That's the fear we should have, the fear of God. The things of this earth only have the ability to kill believers and no more than that. But Jesus says, if you turn away, if you show yourself not to have trusted in Christ alone for salvation, not to be following God, then he says you should have a great fear. That's where the, the fear that we have should be rooted. Even believers have a reverent fear of God. We love God and we fear what might happen if we are not saved. Of course, we can have assurance in Christ. We can. We spoke about that a few weeks ago. But is he talking to believers here? He is. He's saying, be careful. Don't show yourself to be an unbeliever by fearing the world, the things that happen in the world. He says, after God has killed, he has authority to cast into hell. It is God who controls all things. He is over all things, even death. We don't always like to think that as Christians, but the Bible does teach that. Deuteronomy 32, 39, God said, It is I who put to death and give life. 1 Samuel 2, 6, The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. Every life and every death is in the hands of our good God. He is a good and wise God. He is not arbitrarily causing things to happen. They're all for his purpose. They're all for his will. But he does bring about life and death. It's all in his timeline. But, but God can do even more than just in the physical life. That, that's all things in the world can do. But God can do more than that. He's making a comparison, Jesus is. He's saying, if you think that man can kill you, God can do that and even more. God will bring about the worst kind of death. Eternal punishment. What's referred to in Revelation as a second death. So you should fear God alone. In times of uncertainty, the fear shouldn't be for your own life. The fear should be for you to have fear of God alone. Only fear Him. Do not fear for your life. What happens, though, if we don't fear God? Jesus says that God will destroy both soul and body in hell, in Gehenna. It's actually a place 
right outside of Jerusalem. Originally, Gehenna was a place where babies were sacrificed to the god Molech. When Israel had turned away in 2 Kings 16 and chapter 21 as well, they would burn their children, their firstborn sons, to this god Molech. Eventually in Scripture, it became a place of judgment. It was a figurative place of judgment. Jeremiah prophesied and said it would be the valley of slaughter in the future. There would be a, a valley of slaughter in the valley of Hinnom, the valley of Gehenna. And Matthew 25, 41, Jesus tells us that it's a figurative place for where Satan and his angels will be punished forever. Mark 9, 43 says it's an everlasting eternal fire and fiery abyss. After the resurrection of the wicked and the final day of judgment, the wicked will be cast into Gehenna, which is a descriptor for the eternal hell, the place of eternal torment, the lake of fire mentioned in Revelation 20, the final place of eternal punishment. So it's not Satan that casts people into hell. It's God. He does it because someone does not put their faith in Christ, because someone has sinned against him. Even people who've never heard of Christ have sinned against an eternal and infinite God. And they will indeed be sent to hell for eternity. And Jesus is not messing around here. He's not softening up the message. He's saying, fear God alone, because God is the one who has the ability after the natural death to cast somebody into hell for eternity. Yes, I tell you, Jesus says, fear him. I have an exclamation point in my English translation. Jesus is getting passionate about this. He does not want his disciples to fear for their own lives only and be done with it. Think about God. Fear him. Whatever God has for you, God has for you. He's a good God. So stop worrying. Stop fearing for your life. Well, the first question you ought to ask right now is, do you fear God in this way? Do I fear God in this way? Am I actually fearing what God can do? Do you really fear God and His promise to throw into hell all those who trust in their own works for salvation? I'm speaking here to those who may consider themselves Christian. They may consider themselves believers, but they actually don't fear God. They're running around right now acting like all they care about is themselves. They're trying to preserve their own life. And they don't show any evidence of fearing God. Any evidence of loving God and loving their neighbor. I want to urge you to trust in Christ, if that describes you. If that describes you as a false Christian, as somebody who says you're a Christian, but you're not showing any of that right now. Because you're so scared for your own life, you're not even having a true and proper reverent fear of God. Trust in Christ. Leave that fear behind. Just admit, you know, I'm not a believer. Just admit, if, if you're not loving God and fearing Him, admit that, confess that sin, and, and trust in Christ. Leave the fear behind. Jesus said that He would take on our burdens, that they're very light when we come to Him, that He would take our fears even, and we could not fear the eternal punishment, because he stands in our place. He died on the cross for sinners. He stands in our place and gives us his righteousness, takes away our sin. So let us not be fearful. Believers, this world is, is full of fear every second of every day. 
We face fears all the time. We have to resist that. We have to turn and only fear God. He controls our lives. Every one of us. Every one of us is in the hand of God. And we've got to show that. We've got to show that in how we live. Jesus is now going to back up this idea that we should only fear God alone. He's going to use some everyday examples. Verse 6, are not five sparrows sold for two cents? Two cents was, uh, that's an English translation. The Greek is asarion. And it's the most basic amount that a worker would earn in half an hour. So it's nothing. It's a few dollars today. Uh, These animals that they would buy, these sparrows, were very cheap is the point. Sparrows are very cheap. You could, you could buy them for a sacrifice for a very low amount. Yet, as cheap as they are, as worthless in human eyes as they are, it says, not one of them is forgotten before God, literally in the sight of God. God is watching over everything in his creation, and not even the sparrows are forgotten. These little insignificant birds, we might think, they're not forgotten. So why are we fearful? If God watches over the lives of sparrows, why are we fearful? Why should we fear? Indeed, Jesus says, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. God knows the things you do not know. He knows how many hairs that you have on your head, whether they're very little or whether they're quite a bit. He knows them all. We can't count our own hairs on our head, but God knows. And they're numbered. They're numbered. That's how intimately God knows us. This is a figure of speech often used in the Bible to remind people to trust in God. Paul uses it in Acts 27 when the ship that's carrying him in the storm for 14 days looks like it's going to go under, looks like it's going to sink. And he reminds the sailors and the soldiers, he encourages them to take some food, for this is for your preservation, for not a hair from the head of any of you will perish. Not only will you not die, Paul says, but he has it from the revelation of God directly that not a single hair of their head, they won't be injured, they won't be harmed, they will make it through. Later, Jesus will tell his disciples in Luke 21, 18, not a hair on your head will perish during persecution unless God ordains it. That's the point he's trying to make there in Luke 21. God is there. Nothing happens which he's not sovereign over. When Jesus said to them, the very hairs of your head are all numbered, the point he's trying to make here is they need to remember that nothing happens outside the will of God. Nothing happens outside of God's providence. It's a doctrine of God's providence. Providence means that God is providing for, He's sustaining, He's governing the universe at all times. He's active. God is always active. He's never passive. God doesn't sit back and wait to find out what's going to happen and then He responds. He doesn't wait for us to do something. He doesn't wait for things to happen in the world. He's always active. He's always active and He's always continuously active in creation. He is there. He is there to take care of the sparrows. He's there to know how many hairs are on your head. They're not all the same for each of us. God's active. And it's His eternal purposes that He's bringing to pass. I like the Heidelberg Catechism here, number 27. The question and answer here. Um, the, The answer is, The Almighty and everywhere present power of God still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures, 
and so governs them that herbs and grass and rain and drought and fruitful and barren years and meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. That's a great reform confession reminding us that all things come from God and he is our father. As believers, we have a father who will take care of us. The Lord is sovereign, sovereign over every little action of the universe. So why do we fear for our lives? We shouldn't. The providence of God is always active. God is always taking care of us, and especially believers. That's not a guarantee that you'll never die. All of us will die unless Christ comes back and takes us first. But it is a guarantee that God is with you, and if you do die, it's in his hands, so we should trust him. J.C. Ryle, uh, the great preacher, has a good quote on this. He says, Nothing, nothing whatever, whether great or small, can happen to a believer without God's ordering and permission. There's no such thing as chance, he says. No such thing as luck. No such thing as an accident, he says, in the Christian's journey through this world. All is arranged and appointed by God, and all things are working together for the believer's good. So not, <clears throat> not one hair on your head will be harmed unless it's part of the magnificent plan of the sovereign God of the universe. Therefore, Jesus concludes, do not fear here in this section. Do not fear. You're more valuable than sparrows. In verse 7, you're more valuable than sparrows. Again, he's arguing from the lesser to the greater. Sparrows are worth almost nothing, and yet God cares for them. Doesn't he care for us? We have to believe that. Romans 8, 28, a, a favorite verse. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. What then shall we say to these things? He continues in verse 31. If God is for us, who is against us? He did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? God's given us his son. He'll give us all things that we need. Stop fearing for your life. We have so many fears right now. Let us not fear for our life. Let us not fear anything but God alone. He is the only one we should fear. And it should be a, hopefully as a believer, you should have a holy, reverent fear of God. Not a fear of judgment, because it's all been done away with, judgment has, in Christ. Well, the second point of this passage that I want you to focus on is, number two, trust in God alone. That's verses 13 through 21 teach us this, that in, in times of uncertainty, not only are we to fear God, but we're to trust in Him alone. We're not to trust in ourselves or not to trust in our possessions. So in verses 13 and 14, the, the context here is that a man has come up to Jesus and has asked him to, to tell the man's brother to divide the inheritance. And Jesus responds, not, not in a way most people think Jesus would respond, but you need to read your Bibles, see here that Jesus often does respond to people in this way. He says, man, who appointed me a judge and an arbitrator over you? Jesus didn't come to settle disputes like that. That's not his mission. That's not his purpose. He's not going to be thrown off from the mission that the Father has given him. But an underlying problem here is this man's greediness, this man's covetousness. And so now Jesus will use this opportunity to address that sin 
to the man, his disciples now listening and learning and understanding what this means for them. Verse 15, Jesus says to them, them here is the disciples. The man's already come and and been dealt with. He might have left or he might be listening. But Jesus again speaking to his disciples, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. That's the real issue here. That's the real issue. Every form of greed is what Jesus is warning about. Now, some Christians might read this and say, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian. I don't really need to be worried about such things. Well, that's prideful. That's prideful. Jesus is talking to his disciples here. He said to them, the 12 and maybe other followers of his at this time, and he's warning them about greed. What is greed? Greed is, is often called covetousness in older translations of the Bible. The Greek word is pleonexia. Sounds like some kind of disease, which figuratively it really is, isn't it? It's a disease of the heart when you're greedy. Pleonexia. The Greek dictionary defines it uh, as a strong desire to acquire more and more material possessions or to possess more things than other people have. All irrespective of need to this desire to have more than everyone else. This consuming heart desire to have more than you need. It doesn't even matter about need. You just want more and more and more. A person who does not have his goal and fulfillment in God is greedy. They're seeking fulfillment in themselves. They're seeking fulfillment in their possessions. This is the sin of greed, covetousness, an evil sin. Colossians 3, 5 says, greed, which amounts to idolatry. Greed amounts to idolatry. Because why? You're focusing on something else other than God. You're putting your trust in your possessions, in your money, in your things. The Apostle Paul even writes to the Corinthian church not to associate with any so-called brother if he is covetousness. It's such a bad witness to the church. You're not even supposed to associate with such a so-called brother. Covetousness is what motivates false teachers. Second Peter says that their hearts are trained in greed. Why are there false teachers? What drives them? Well, they're, they're greedy. They want more power. They want more money. A covetous man or woman is the type of person listed among with the fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, drunkards, revilers, and swindlers in Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 6 all of which, Paul says, will not inherit the kingdom of God. A person who's driven by this, a person whose whole life is consumed by greed, will not inherit the kingdom of God. If you are covetous, if you are covetous, if you are greedy, you will not see the kingdom of Christ. You will not spend eternity in heaven. The Bible has a lot to say about greediness. Very strong warnings. And it can affect a believer. All sins of the world can affect believers too. It can affect and tempt believers. If the Christian lets it take over and consume their life, well, they'll just show themselves that they weren't an actual believer in the first place. So Jesus is warning them. He's warning them. And we ought not to be prideful. We need to listen to this message. He's talking to his disciples. And he says, beware of every form of greed, not just money, all kinds of covetousness. Watch out for the desire to have more, more money, possessions, accomplishment. Whatever becomes an idol and takes you away from God. Here's a good question you need to ask. Just just fill in the blank to this statement. 
I'm not concerned at all about the pandemic because blank. What would you fill in the blank with? Some people would say, I'm too young. I'm not concerned. I'm too young. I'm healthy. I'm not really concerned about this whole thing going around. I'm healthy. I trust in science to find a solution. Science can be very helpful. It can be very good. But you shouldn't put your trust there. It's not the ultimate place of trust. I trust in the government, some would say. I trust in the government to fix this problem. They're doing a good job. I trust in them. Well, government, government is ordained by God. But should we put our trust there? I have plenty of money. I've got plenty of money to make this thing, uh, make it through this pandemic, to wade this thing out. I have stockpiles of supplies, meat, bread, toilet paper the last 20 years. Don't put your trust in possessions. Look what Jesus says here. For not even, not even when one has an abundance, does his life consist of his possessions. Your life, what it it is you live for is not made up of what you own. You can't trust those things. You can't. He's about to tell us with a parable why. But Jesus came to give life. He did. He came to give abundant life. But he's not making a promise. He's not saying that you'll have all the wealth and possessions you need. That no matter what happens, Jesus is not saying, well, you'll be fine because you'll be wealthy. You'll have what you want, what you desire. That's not what's meant here by the word life when Jesus said he came to give abundant life. Real abundant life is given to us when we believe in the gospel and we trust in Christ for salvation. We have reconciliation with God. We have great joy. We have peace. We have love. We have patience. We have kindness. That's what it means to have an abundant life. Abundancy is not just from money, possessions. It's from these great spiritual blessings that that Christ gives us, the fruits of the Spirit. But we ought not to trust in our possessions. Job talks about this. Go with me to, to Job, Job 31. Job's a great book. We just looked at Job a few weeks ago in one of our equipping classes. It's one of my favorite wisdom. It is my favorite wisdom book, one of my favorite books of the Old Testament Job 31, verse 24. Job is is just pouring out his heart here. But listen to what he teaches us about possessions and things and God here. Job 31, 24. If I put my confidence in gold and called fine gold my trust, if I have gloated because my wealth was great and because my hand had secured so much, If I've looked at the sun when it shone or the moon going in splendor and my heart became secretly enticed and my hand threw a kiss over my mouth or from my mouth, that too would have been an iniquity. Iniquity is sin. All of those things would have been an iniquity calling for judgment for I would have denied God above. What is it saying? Job's saying, look, if I trusted in anything other than God, That would be a sin. Why? Because I'm essentially denying God above. I'm denying that God will take care of me, that I can trust in Him, and I'm putting my trust somewhere else. Life can never be measured by possessions. If it is, if you're measuring your life by possessions, that's covetousness, that's sin, that's greed. And Jesus is going to illustrate that now by telling the disciples a parable. A parable is a story Uh, drawn from the real world, which is cast alongside the principle that Jesus is trying to teach here. And he starts in verse 16, and he tells them a parable saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. 
This man's land was very productive. And it does not say that the man was in sin for being rich or being very productive. He has land. The land is very productive. That's meaning that he has a great expanse of farmland and that God has blessed him with that. He's very wealthy from it. From the very beginning, Jesus is just starting off like this. He has an abundance of earthly possessions. It's very productive. Only God can make it productive. We understand God brings the rain. God brings the growth. God brings the the business growth. And so this is God's common grace. Not even talking here. It doesn't even say if the man's a believer or not, if he trusts in God or not. It's just simply stating the man is rich and he has very productive land. His wealth is not the problem. The problem starts here in verse 17. And he began reasoning to himself. Anytime you read that in the Bible, it's not a good sign. You never want to see that describing you. He began reasoning to himself. What shall I do? Since I have no place to store my crops. Now this is a natural problem. Sometimes we need to store things and we run out of space. So it's a practical question in some ways. But, but he doesn't stop to think that he's already got plenty. He doesn't stop to think, I've already got enough. He says, what do I have to do now to store more crops? I have no place for my new crops coming in. So here's what he says. Listen to how many times he talks about himself. This is what I will do. I will tear down my barn and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. One, two, three, four, five, six times he references himself. No reference to God. No reference to God, even by implication here. He's not just tearing down his barns and sort of consolidating them into one barn. He's tearing down all his barns and building many bigger Barns, large storehouses is the word here. It's an exceptional windfall of wealth that this man has had this season. He has made quite a bit of money, we might say today. Back then it would be measured in grain. And it's a a great windfall from the Lord. And what does he do? He talks about himself. He thinks about himself. If he has a family, we don't even know it in this. Because he's only concerned about his own wealth and storing up more and more and more. He's not just saving up a bumper crop for next year. He already has plenty to do that. He's saying, I'm going to save up for many, many years to come. None of what he says gives any thanks to God. Notice, it doesn't acknowledge that it's God's wealth in the first place. And in verse 19, it gets even worse. He says, I will say to my soul, soul, You have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease. Eat, drink, be merry. Now that this man has made plans, he's quite happy with himself. He says, I've got enough. I've got enough. He says, it's time to relax. Take it easy. I don't have anything to worry about, you know. It doesn't matter what happens. Natural disasters and pandemics and wars, government changes. Nothing to worry about. I can relax. I have enough to make it through. 
Well, as a Christian, if you are a Christian, you ought to be thinking right now, uh, this is not a good example. This is not a good example. You, you should never, as a Christian, say, you know what, I'm not worried because I have enough. I have enough. I, I can outlast. I can be fine. We're not talking here about just providing for the coming weeks. We're not talking about here even storing up for a retirement. That's a whole different issue. We're looking here at trusting in your things to get you through and storing up as a practical outworking of that. Well, this type of thinking is not compatible with true discipleship. It's not compatible with being a Christian who follows Scripture. Uh, Believers want to give generously and do it with a cheerful heart, not store up for many, many years to come. Don't say to yourself, I have an underground bunker of stuff to get me through all this. I I go to HEP every time I can to raid the shelves and be part of that massive panic to get all the food off the grocery store shelves. I'm so proud of myself. I can last for months and months. No, that's not Christian thinking. If you hold on to your money, if you hold on to your possessions with a tight fist, then you're not obeying Christ here. That's that's the point he's going to make. You run the risk of, of falling into the trap that this rich fool did. The man should have given it away. He had plenty. He should have given it away instead of patting himself on the back and thinking how great and special he was. He's so great. He's so special. You see, wealth gives a person a a false sense of security. I once knew a young man. He was just starting out in business. It it looked like he was going to do very well. He had everything going for him. He saw all this wealth and money he was about to make. And I asked him, I said, are you a Christian? Do Do you even care about things of God? And he said, you know, I'm not really worried about that right now. Right now I have my whole life ahead of me. I have this business to start and this money to make. I'll go to church later. I'll go to church someday. Well, within five years, he had lost it all. He was bankrupt, out of business. He had no business. He had no profession. He was done. And still, he had not trusted in the Lord. He he put his faith in possessions, and those didn't even work out for him. Well, this man should have turned here in Luke 12. He should have turned to God and asked God, what should I do with this abundance? And God would have said, Give it to others in need. Well, look what happens here in verse 20. God said to him, so this man is telling himself, I'm fine, I'll just take it easy and relax for many, many years. And this man is taken away quickly. God says directly to him, you fool. You don't want God to say that to you. You fool. This very night, your soul is required of you. God calls this man a fool. Why? Because he acted like there was no God. He may have said he believed in God, but he acted like there was no God. In the Old Testament, this word fool is is one who either acts without care of God or acts without any wisdom towards a future destruction. So a fool in the Bible is someone who, who doesn't even care about God, an unbeliever, an atheist type, or maybe even someone who does care about God and say they follow God, but they don't think about their future at all and the destruction that might be coming upon them. So this rich fool in the the parable was a practical atheist. No matter what he said, he was a practical atheist, and he did not care what God had to say about it. Nothing in his life showed it. 
What good did it do for him to believe in a creator of the universe if he had no interest in living for God? Everyone sees this rich fool in his day, in his community, as someone just hoarding up food for himself. They didn't see faith in God when they looked at this man. They might have said, well, God has blessed him with much, but then how is he acting? Everyone, many of which would have been hungry at that time, many poor people living around him who needed some food. They needed some crops. They needed something to eat. And all they see is a man who is not acting godly at all. He put his faith in possessions. Oh, this man, he thought his soul could just relax and live a life of ease. But now that very soul that he's been talking to himself, right? That very soul is being called this night to stand before God and to give an account. He thought, he thought he could save his soul with money. But he actually lost his soul by trusting in money. He hoarded up, trusting in that. And he did not trust in God. It's either one or the other. You either trust in yourself and your possessions or you trust in God. It can't be both. It can't be both. And Jesus says, and now, or this is God still speaking, sorry, in verse 20, and now who will own what you have prepared? The man died before he could even build his barns. And so he has all this wealth and he's getting ready to do great things, he thinks, for himself. And it says, God says to him, who will own what you have prepared? What irony. What an irony here. A man saved up all these things. There were blessings from God. He wanted to spend it on himself so he could live a life of luxury. And he's not even going to be able to enjoy it. He can't even enjoy it. The one person who will not get to spend a dime of it is this man. Why does Jesus tell us this? Because it's an example of what we're not to do in times of uncertainty or even in times when things are calm and we're being blessed. We are not to put our trust in possessions, put our trust in God. This man, everything he lived for doesn't matter anymore. He's gone and it will all soon be gone as well. James 1 verse 11 says, For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass. The grass is gone. Day by day, the grass withers away, he says. Its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Right in the midst of his pursuits. As the rich man is pursuing more and more and more, he'll just fade away. He'll be gone. And there'll be nothing that he'll have left after he dies. He goes on after this life, probably in this case, to a place of eternal torment. There's no indication that this man is a believer. Certainly in James, James is talking about unbelievers who are pursuing their wealth at all times. Well, Jesus brings the parable now to a point. He says in verse 21, So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This is what's going to happen. To all people who store up treasures for themselves, Jesus says. So is the man. That's what's going to happen if you store up treasure for yourself and you're not rich towards God. Now again, the sin here is not that the man had wealth. It's not that the man was abundantly blessed. God gave that blessing to him. God produced that blessing in his life. Now that's not the sin. The sin is that he did not, 
show any love, any richness toward God. He actually committed multiple sins, if we think about it. So he showed through his actions that he didn't care about God. He only cared about himself. His greed and covetousness could could never be satisfied. He wanted more and more and more. He hoarded his possessions, not willing to share them with others, other people who needed those things. He assumed that life could be secured and measured by those possessions. He, He regarded his possession and property as being solely his, without any thought of God. He only thought of himself. He never thought of God's desires. So what's the point? Be rich towards God. Be rich towards God. That's the opposite of this parable. The whole reason Jesus taught this was to give us a negative side so we would not do it. Don't be a fool like this man and store up treasures. Now in times of uncertainty is not to trust in yourself and just keep stockpiling and keep stockpiling. If the world's going to end, which we know as Christians, what's going on now is not what is described in the book of Revelation. We know that first of all. But if it was going to, there's nothing you can do to stop it. God's going to send Christ back to get you anyway and snatch you up to be with him in the air. Well, let's stop here in in Luke 12 and, and just talk about some application we'll come back next week and we'll look at this last section. And when we get there, I want to point out to you that we're to seek the kingdom of God alone. That's going to be next Sunday. But let's ask ourselves, how can we be rich towards God? If we're not to fear for our life, but to fear God alone, what does that look like? And even probably more to the point here, what does it mean to be rich towards God right now in our current situation? if we shouldn't be stockpiling and hoarding up and and getting all the the items we can so that others don't have them, how should we respond? How should we act? Well, we could just summarize, give generously. That's how we're rich towards God. Give generously. What a testimony that would be. By the way, you can't be rich towards God unless you're a Christian. Unbelievers can give money. Unbelievers can, can give to Uh, philanthropy, but only a Christian can truly be rich towards God because they have the right heart. They have the right desires. They're not trying to buy something or earn something or gain their salvation through giving. But as believers, we should be rich towards God and give generously to others. God owns it all anyway. He's given it to us for a reason. It's not how much we have. What's important is what we do with what we have. So 1 Timothy 6 describes exactly what we should do with our wealth, with the things we have. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited. Who's rich in the present world? Almost all of us. Almost all of us. We don't don't often think about that because we always know somebody who has more than us. But again, that's falling into the trap of comparing possessions. If you have more than enough to last you, house, vehicles, money, food, And you have more than most people in the world right now. We've gotten too used to that in America. Well, in ancient times, a rich person was very rare. And it said, instruct those who are rich in this present world to not be conceited, not to trust in your own things, and to fix your hope on God. He says, don't fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. So we trust in God. Trust in God alone. And now he instructs them how to do that. What does that look like? 
Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, do good deeds for others. Don't, don't sit back and say you have enough. People should work for you and do good deeds for you. Do good deeds for others. Be generous, Paul says to Timothy, to be generous and ready to share. Storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. You show yourself to be a Christian by helping others, by giving generously, being ready to share. That's a good witness right now. We're in uncertain times. Everybody's grabbing what they can get. Just show up at the grocery store or Walmart at, at 8 o'clock and get in line and, and see. They've had to restrict how many people can even be in a building at one time. Why? Because there's such a rush or such a panic. Panic is just unbelief. It's, it's worrying. It's fearing when we don't need to. No, do something opposite. Give to those in need. Give to those in need. Do good works with your money. That's what, how we can apply this. Help, help those in need. Feed the hungry. Support the widows. Start with your church. Who needs help in our church? Contact a deacon. Find out who needs help in our church. We have something set up for that right now. Maybe you need help. Maybe you're watching this and need help. Come to your local church. Ask the deacons of your church. But believers, just believers in general, help others in this time. That's how you show the love of Christ. Now you've got to explain the gospel. Don't, don't, don't think that giving somebody an extra roll of toilet paper is somehow evangelizing them. You've got to explain the gospel to them if they're an unbeliever, eventually. But show love for your neighbor. And then another thing I want to mention, the last thing here, is give support to the work of God in the world, which is primarily through your local church. Other ministries as well, but your local church. Give generously. Now, Jesus doesn't say that here because the church hasn't started yet. The church will start later. In Luke 12, there's only a group of disciples. Later, Jesus says, I will build my church. We see that on the day of Pentecost going forward. But if we're to give generously, what better place than to the work of God in this world? This includes financially supporting the work of the local church. Whether you're part of this church or you're watching today and you're part of another church, support your church in its teaching and preaching and training and discipling, caring for the needy, sending out missionaries, future church plants, helping the financial needs of the body. I don't have to tell you that when churches aren't meeting, they're going to suffer in their giving. Most churches will. And so this is a time to show your richness towards God. This is a time to support the local body just like you normally would if you were meeting. I, I saw in some social media where someone predicted that all the small churches would really struggle and most would go away while the large mega seeker churches had enough to make it through. I hope that's not the case. I trust in God that that's not the case. But I encourage you to use what God has given you wisely. And we'll come back next week and we'll look how we're not to worry but we're to seek the kingdom of of God alone. So I hope you're saying amen with me today. I hope you're saying I do fear God alone. I hope you're saying that I do trust God for my everyday needs. I trust his providence and I'm willing to give generously to help others. Let's go to him in prayer now and let's ask him to help us with this. Lord, we do come before you today. We know, we know that you have blessed us richly. 
You've given us every spiritual blessing, everything we need in the Christian life. If we put our trust in Christ, you've given us all that we need. You will take care of us. We believe that. We believe you'll take care of us through whatever's happening in the world. We know you'll preserve your church. We know that you'll preserve believers. There will be some ups and downs. There will be some difficulties, but we trust in you. We fear you. We're we're more concerned about eternal life than we are about our circumstances day to day. That's in your hands. All things are in your hands, but we look forward to eternity where we don't have to even think of these things because we're there with you. We're there with Christ. We're living on a new earth where there are no viruses that harm us. There are no illnesses. There are no diseases. That's what we look forward to. So help us to put our trust in you day to day. Let us turn away from what the the world and the news is making us worry about. And let's turn to the precious word of God. And let's be reminded, please, Lord, remind us through your word that we ought to pray to you, that we ought to ask of you to help us, and we will trust every day, every day, we will trust in you. We're in your hands, Father. We pray this in the name of our matchless Savior and King, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, Michael, will you come and lead us in our closing song?